Hello again. Welcome to another edition of Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune from Farragut Square Group. And with me, as always, is my fabulous co-host, Chris Whirling, partner at McDermott, Will & Emery in Chicago. Thanks, Brian. Q2 for us in the transactions world ended on a really busy note. You know, it kind of came in like a lamb and out like a lion. <laughs> and uh, there were a ton of different transaction processes that had bid deadlines in early June. We were fortunate to have clients win some of those bids. That has led to a really busy June and July. And so Q3 is starting pretty strong. I'd say the only weakness that we're monitoring out there is some shakiness in the leveraged buyout debt markets. For the lower middle market transactions, there's still lenders there, but for more sizable transactions at larger leverage, multiples, there's definitely some shakiness and uh, inability to get debt lined up for transactions. Now, hopefully the economic indicators for over the last couple of weeks, things like inflation slowing a little bit, continued job strength, economic growth will get lenders a little more comfortable with lending again for those larger transactions. And Q3 will continue to be strong on the deal front. We're very excited to join you guys again because we're back with popular episodes and that is our bankers update with our special guest once again is going to be Mark Francis from Houlihan Loki. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's something we talk about every day and look forward to the conversation. So it should be fun. Okay, so we did this in Miami. We were one quarter in and uh, we had lots of exciting things to talk about. Now we just wrapped up two quarters. Just kick it off. Bring us up to speed. What do we think about the deal market this year versus the last couple? Sure. Well, first, Miami event was great. I do remember baking in the heat while we were doing this. So this is a little bit cooler uh, environment <laughs> this time. So yeah, so 2Q is brought uh, several challenges. So if you remember in the first quarter, uh, activity was a little bit lower. We had some uh, cautionary tales in terms of inflation and a concern over economic conditions. And so I would say those have persisted and somewhat intensified. And so inflation has continued at a 40-year high, which is very concerning for a lot of areas, which we'll get to in a minute. Interest rates have risen since our last quarterly call. You know, Ukraine conflict has continued. So a lot of things that, you know, supply chain, a lot of those four or five big bucket areas have continued um, and even gotten, I would say, slightly worse. And so in the first quarter, we really didn't see a meaningful impact on those items. Um, in the second quarter, I would say it's starting to weigh on the conversations, particularly on the financing markets. Leverage capacity and capability is lower in the second quarter and going forward in the rest of the year. Interest rates are up in general and up on M&A deals. And so that has had an impact on valuations in some sectors. And you know we're probably a little more cautious sitting here today than we were 90 days ago. So that's kind of the overall macro theme. I would say when you get to the healthcare M&A part, the driving the deal part, which we're here to discuss uh, by the numbers, uh, M&A volume in globally and in the U.S. is down around 23% from year over year, same period from 21 to 22. It's almost consistent, whether it's geography, sector, whatever it is, it's in that 20 to 25% range lower. Um, so I think that's interesting consistency. Now, some of that we anticipated given the peak year last year, there was 4,000 M&A deals in healthcare globally last year. Because of that, we thought some of that was pulled forward as we talked about last time for tax considerations. But some of that also was 2020 lower volume that got pushed into 21. So for, for regardless of reasons, 21 was a great year. So we knew coming into this year would be a little bit lower. 
And so really what we anticipate going forward is a more robust environment. A lot of processes are getting launched this summer and around Labor Day. Um, And so we really think about, if you look at the overall activity for this year, both globally and in the U.S., we really look at it as almost a pre-pandemic volume, kind of think about 2018 or 2019. Now you've got some financing conditions, and particularly in the larger M&A volume. Syndicated markets are pretty dislocated at this stage, but for deals kind of under billion dollars, private markets, the club markets, Unitron are pretty open minus the higher rates and, and lower level of, of debt. And I think it'll be a productive market with, you know, again, with some caution. So we think balance of the year will be more active than the first part of the year. And it'll be kind of back to pre-pandemic levels. So a lot of deal years, you know, you see Q3 and four really are kind of the big show. One is often for us, you know, a bit of carryover from the previous year that just didn't get wrapped up. Late one and two are, are kind of always sort of a, everybody boiling up, collecting their knowledge, deciding where to deploy money. And then three and four really ramped to a big, strong finish. Is is the slowdown that we're seeing off of, of both the macro factors in 21, is that going to produce a much slower Q3 and 4? Or is it, do you think it's just going to be kind of a healthy, steady finish with maybe more thoughtful efforts? Yeah, I think it'll be a healthy finish, but I think it's going to be a little bit bifurcated in that the balance of the year will be about quality, right? So if you think about last year's markets, people were very concerned about the level of adjustments in earnings. And so that kind of pervaded the market, but a lot of those got through. I think there's going to be significantly more scrutiny on adjustments going forward. I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to leadership and the quality management teams, level of integration for M&A plays, um, and just overall growth. I think what's new today versus maybe 90 days ago, or even the first part of the year, is that people are starting to think about 2023. And they're starting to like ask themselves, depending on the sector, how will this business or sector perform in a either a slowdown scenario or an outright recession scenario? So you're seeing a lot of supplemental analysis around that. And look, some sectors fare better than others. I'll give you one small example, like dental, for instance, we can go back to multiple years and look at the recessionary performance and a regular year, you might have same store growth that's up one, two, three percent. And in a recession, it might be down one or two percent. So the, the delta is really not that significant. In other sectors, it could be pretty significant depending on uh, how it's done. So I think people are starting to ask those questions ahead of time. And for sectors that don't fare as well in that conversation or analysis, I think you'll see valuations pull back maybe more than others. When you think about the rest of this year, what sectors are heating up versus cooling off compared to when we first talked earlier this year? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I think the sectors that were hot in the first quarter are still attractive and a lot of activity. I think in some sectors, what you're seeing though, really, Brian, is a tale of two cities. I mean, so if you've got a larger high quality company I think there's a ton of interest in things like behavioral and vet, you know, other sectors that we talked about in the last quarter. And so I think that's continued. But what you're seeing is a lot of the big trades in a lot of these sectors have already happened. And so there's a scarcity value of 500 to billion dollar trades in some of the sectors. And so when one pops up, I think you'll see people be pretty aggressive. And sectors that have cooled, I would say, or, or have cooled for a while are things like anything impacted by surprise billing. So think Anastasia, right. transportation, and one that kind of is on our watch list just due to a recent reimbursement proposals, home care, pretty meaningful yeah, reduction there. And so we'll see how that plays out. But you know, on, on the other side of that, personal care has been pretty active. Hospice is still a very attractive sector. A lot of people are focused on, but there's just not that many larger companies that are entertaining exits. So 
It'll be an interesting year, but I don't think there's anything new or indifferent on that list per se. One macro factor that is present in all the questions that, that I think we're seeing is how do you think the market's viewing the, the labor issue across different verticals? You know, it's interesting. I would say the labor certainly has, has pervaded uh, the inflation, the clinical inflation and other staff inflation has pervaded a lot of discussions with management teams. I think generally the sectors and management teams have done a pretty good issue of navigating that issue, not that the inflation has impacted the business, but they found other ways to deploy technology or have productivity in their, in their labor force. A lot of the CEOs that I talk to believe that it's kind of run its course, right? So we've had kind of a bigger than normal increases in cost of labor. And they think that in the next couple of quarters, that will abate, i.e. it's not going to happen again next year. Right. But that's somewhat speculation. I think the bigger concern really for a lot of people is, particularly in the healthcare services sectors, is just the availability of clinicians. Because you can't grow if you don't have people to provide services. And so I think that is becoming, as you think about growth and investment thesis and trying to underwrite a case for valuation and investment, that's becoming, you know, a bigger issue than it has in the past. And, you know, also I would say around that, it's not just the total availability. There's some sector rotation among clinicians between facilities and things like home care or more retail settings. And so there's a rotation within the clinical setting. So depending on what sector you're in, it could be a really big issue or maybe not as big of an issue. But, you know, other kind of healthcare uh, retail sites that are more active this year than last year. One would be urgent care, more active this year than last year. We've seen more activity in dermatology. I think there's a ton going on in dental, uh, not yeah. just traditional DSOs, but more on the specialty side. And I think we mentioned cardiology last time as an emerging sector, and I think that's picked up. Now, there's a handful of private equity funds exploring theses there. But Brian, one, one thing I'm sure you guys see too, um, within private equity funds, we see them narrowing the focus. Both last year they did this and for the balance of the year. And a lot of the conversations we have with private equity funds are not what sectors do you like and where you focus, but it's really more narrow than that. It's what are the five, six, or eight companies that you're targeting for investment and people are being super proactive and trying to develop thesis and relationships and really do something with specific companies versus the conversations a year or two ago were, hey, we like physical therapy. Now it's, hey, here are three companies in physical therapy that we really want to invest in. People are just trying to be productive and more specific around their thesis now. Mark, where is the strategic activity in all of this? Have strategic balance sheets cooled off or are they still participating aggressively in transaction processes? I think strategic activity, you know, strategic balance sheets are really strong. I would say the activity has picked up a continuation of the theme of the payers investment in home care, United and Optum process acquiring LHC group for five and a half billion. Uh, yesterday, Amazon announced the signing of a definitive agreement with One Medical. And so that was three and a half billion. So that was a pretty big, meaningful transaction and a transition to a deeper healthcare investments for, for Amazon. So I think you'll continue to see things like that that are more trans, transformative in nature, whether it's a getting into a new sector if you're a big payer or hospital company or something transformative for Amazon, getting much deeper into to healthcare. We've seen behavioral uh... Uh, health companies pretty much pick up across the board. And I don't know if you agree, but it seems like, you know, it used to cycle on, you know, one year we'd do a lot of deals that were in autism and like ABA therapy. And then another year you'd go back to substance abuse treatment, you know, and maybe you'd have some, you know, weight management or some other plays, kind of the eating disorders thrown in there. But you know, this year it seems to be that everything across the board is all of interest. I think that's right. And that's good, good insight, Brian. I would say, as we talk to people, outpatient is probably the principal area of focus for a lot of investors. 
as we look at behavioral, that's a big area of focus for us. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the big deals, big trades have already happened. And so what's left in behavior, which is an attractive high growth sector, is a lot of companies that have kind of 5, 10, 20 of EBITDA, right? They're a little bit smaller. But, you know, behavioral, certain parts of that, particularly autism and IDD and some others, have really been negatively impacted by the inflation concern. So autism, I would say, maybe more availability of staff. But behavioral is one. It's a high growth sector that's really been impacted by those. So as we look at those sectors, I think you'll see those two issues pervade the conversations. Are you seeing any sectors where things are falling into distressed territory? You know, we are seeing a pickup in distressed activity, more broadly speaking. It's not sector denominated in that, you know, if you look at the decade or two previously, nursing home reimbursement got trimmed pretty significantly. You see a lot of restructures in that sector, right? Or home care or other things. I think what we see today is a lot of the companies are heading into the current cycle with tough balance sheets. They went through pandemic uh, or maybe they were over levered. And then margins are getting squeezed now in certain sectors. And so it compounds the issue and they just don't have the liquidity or availability to pay back their total debt. And so we are seeing more restructurings, but it's more company specific things that were kind of self-inflicted. But, you know, if you look at the number of larger restructuring things that have a concern around them, it's probably meaningfully more today than it was, say, six months ago. Mark, what is exciting investors in the digital realm these days? Well, it seems like in, in digital, there's some new buzzword population health, patient engagement, you know, it seems like a new buzzword every year. So I think in digital, there's a lot of exciting things going on within healthcare technology. But as I think about the longer term trends, they really impact on patients and delivery of care. It's really the convergence of services and digital. And so if you think about where we are in the cycle today, about value-based care and providers taking more risk, um, they're really going to need a significant, a deeper integration within digital and technology, things like AI or robotics or all kinds of digital transformations over the long term to be more competitive um, and to be able to provide higher quality patient care and a delivery patient care. So we see just an enormous adoption day and going forward around those areas. But it's really a whole bunch of growth within healthcare technology in and of its own self, but also just convergence within providers, payers, and digital, we think is is very exciting. All right. One question that I think a lot of people in the audience who might be newer in the industry will, will ask, of course, is, you know, those of us who've been through recessions before often kind of want to know how, how it affects PE. Because we know what it does on the equity side markets. They kind of have a big correction. But you know, whereas in PE, people often find themselves sitting on a, a sizable war chest. So, you know, what's the best way for kind of your your newer, nearly minted VPs to think about maybe a coming uh, slowdown in, in the economy? Sure. Um, it, interesting question, by the way. And as I think about, I've been through three or four of these recessions as a professional banker, finance person in healthcare. You know, I think the lessons learned are this, just stay focused and st- keep your heads down, whether you're an operator, whether you're a banker, whether you're a consultant. Um, healthcare is very, resilient. It's not recession proof, but it is recession resilient. This is a mission critical industry. What's interesting, I would say two things we learned from the last recession. One is it's never as bad as you think it is, right? So healthcare, I mean, people still are sick, need to get cared for, right? That's number one. And so people both in the last recession and in the current recession, we're having conversations with private equity. So there are more private equity funds today who look at healthcare as a defensive play in a tough economic cycle in the next 12, 18, 24 months. And so today there are actually more 
investors looking at healthcare deals than there were a year ago, so, which is a good thing for everybody in the sector, right? Um, and I think the second one is, it was a really an offshoot out of the last recession, which is everyone looked at healthcare investments versus other investments. And an interesting stat was uh, running around private equity circles for years, which is on average for healthcare investments that were done in the last recession, they fared better than almost any other industry. And so as you think about more defensive play, right, mission critical, higher growth, and just the investments historically in a tough economic cycle have turned out better. A lot of reasons to pay attention to healthcare, but at the end of the day, Brian, private equity's war chest of dry powder, and we have talked about this a lot, is a trillion dollars. Like that money has to get put to work. And so even in a tougher economic cycle, that is a something that can boost the activity. Um, and I think we'll see more creativity in the cycle. Things to pay attention to are to make sure if you do a private equity deal or any deal, is just not to overlever the company, right? You want to have conservative leverage, have some cushion, make sure you got an equity partner who's got additional equity to put in. And, and really try to grow the business because I do think there are a lot of opportunities in this next cycle, potentially acquire companies at a lower valuation to do lots of follow on or smaller transactions and to really build a sizable company as long as you do it in the right way and have the right infrastructure and don't grow too fast, so to speak. But you know, there still is opportunities and good management teams will navigate through tougher times. So a lot of times with clients, we kind of wave the yellow flag on, on different things. Sometimes it's going to be an asset specific through our own diligence, but other times it might be sort of a sector wide and it's not stay away. It's be aware, you know, know what you're getting into when you structure a deal. You know, I'm kind of curious here. I thought on this, I mean, one thing we do know from the last few recessions is that state revenue cycles also reset. Where I'm going with this is that a lot of Medicaid dependent businesses have been, you know, quite in vogue lately because states have been sitting on, you know, the state revenues have been very, very robust. Uh, but even more recently, you know, because of COVID, what you've had is a huge outflow of federal dollars to the state. You know, you now have a majority of states right now are sitting on, you know, pretty substantial, like in the case of California, gigantic budget surpluses. But if the economy turns down, those tend to dry up very, very quickly. So, you know, how as a banker, would you tell somebody to think about that if they're doing a business that's like very dependent on state Medicaid revenue? Great insight and something that, you know, only comes from someone who's been in healthcare for a long time. So uh, I know we both have. And so that's a good thing. I would say it's something we look at anytime we look at uh, Medicaid payer that's a significant part of the revenue stream. You can't divorce that without looking at the state. And so if you have any concentration or density in a state, you've got to look at the the trend over a, more than a one or two year period, look at it over longer term, how they reimburse those services under a recessionary or slowdown environment. And what I would suggest is all things are not created equal, right? So you can see people's, the state's legislators' behavior on reimbursement may be different for pediatrics, for instance, or, or home health than say for a skilled nursing facility, right? So some, they have more aptitude to cut, others, they have less aptitude to cut. And so kind of have to factor all that into the thesis, but you know, these things have a, usually take a couple of years to kind of work their way through. It's something that's on our mind. And I think, to be honest, no one's really for the last couple of years mentioned that as a concern. But as you rightfully no. pointed out, going into the cycle that we're going into, I think going to be on everybody's mind. One of the things I would, I would caution the audience around is just all recessions are not created equal, right? And some, like the last Great Recession, was super deep and for a period of years and was very yeah. problematic. And We've had a financial other, crisis that was attached to it. Exactly. 
But you know, that one one was, I would say, credit induced. If we go into a recession, it's not 100% sure. It's, it's certainly a, a risk, but it's not a certainty that we may go into a recession, but it will be an inflation induced recession, potentially even stagflation kind of scenario. And there's a lot of people who think it'll be fairly short and shallow. And so if that is the case, it wouldn't have as big of an impact on other valuations, credit, state budgets, uh, those kinds of things, as much as something that would be really deep. So it's something we're watching. I don't know that we can really, I don't think anybody has a crystal ball today, but it's, as you said, it's something that of the five things you got to think about on a deal, that's definitely one of them. Let's go back to home health. Yeah. So home health has been hot, it's hot for multiple reasons. I mean, you know, obviously there's been a concerted effort to lower institutional post-acute days. Home health benefited from that. They benefited from, you know, Medicare Advantage pushing people in this direction. They benefited from like bundled payment among health systems. Desire of people themselves also lends itself to, to home health. And, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's, you know, obviously robust and trading uh, high multiples. But now they're in the middle of a pricing reset that, you know, we believe is going to be structured in a way that home health in the end will be just fine. They're going to get a squeeze for the next few years, but it's not, you know, an existential squeeze. But, you know, maybe this is a broader question that isn't just home health, but it's sort of that question of when you're so hot that you're trading at really fantastic, almost unbelievable multiples, like how long does it usually take for that to, to kind of correct itself in everybody's assessment? Yeah, particularly if you're mid-pack, I think you look at the industry and say, look, when margins continue to expand and get in kind of a mid to upper teens kind of number, yep. particularly for public companies, I mean, you can see over time when margins get robust, they say, hey, look, we probably should cut reimbursement, change reimbursement structurally, or just the rate margins go down. And then the operators who are pretty good in the space and have lots of levers to pull, navigate and get margins back up over time. So looking at that over a long period of time, you say that teams and the industry is pretty resilient, which is not untrue. But I think that's what's happened. If you look over the last 20 or 30 years, that's somewhat of a cycle of every, and, and you probably know better than I, but somewhat every six to 10 years, there's some meaningful discussion around reimbursement of the structure. Yeah, we may be heading into one of those again, just because the trustees keep saying that uh, the lifeline, I mean, that lifeline of Medicare just got a, a, a little bit of love in the last trustees report and that they gave them an extra couple of years. Um, but not not a lot. It's still a near, you know, fixing the trust fund is like a near-term priority for Congress eventually when they can get right. back to legislating again. I know. Yeah, but if you look at healthcare more broadly, I've spent a ton of time in the space. It's a, an area that patients prefer to be in. It's the low cost setting. So home care is gonna, absolutely going to continue to grow. People will continue to invest in it and, it and it will continue to do well. And so we're a big believer in the sector. It will have some bumps here and there, just like any other service that's reimbursed by Medicare does. And I think that we're just in the latest latest iteration of that. This is a question that our lawyer guests often get asked to tackle, but I would love to hear perspective from the banking community. This administration has as you've seen, has a lot of new activity at the FTC and elsewhere on, on antitrust. And they've even gone so far as to single out private equity-backed healthcare as, as an area of focus. What's the best way for people to think about that? You've already seen the FTC come block certain types of add-on acquisitions, primarily driven by some health systems or some you know larger healthcare companies. Is this a worry that people need to, to have when they think about how to structure a deal? Well, the short answer is... Yes, that's a concern and, and you should be focused on it. 
I haven't seen anything uh, that get that has been blocked that is unusually off the rails. I would say best way I would describe it is the scrutiny around antitrust review is probably the highest it's ever been. There's a lot of second reviews and a lot of additional reviews, no scrutiny being put on these HSR filings, particularly with any level of strategic involvement, whether it's within the sector, outside the sector. I think it gets just a ton of review. I've not seen any private equity investments get that level of review, whether it be PA or otherwise. So we haven't seen that be unnecessarily intense. I would say our administration really didn't get reviewed that passed. There was no meaningful overlap in markets. You know, you'd say, hey, look, one company in another state is buying another company in another state. That would fly through. There's no meaningful overlap there. That's not anti-competitive issue. Those are getting reviewed pretty intensely now. And so I think you've got to be concerned that something may come out, whether it's a divestiture or whatever. So you think about the structuring, it's kind of what happens if they ask you to divest of something is really kind of what you're talking about in, in documents on the structuring side. One thing we've seen in the current market is we've definitely seen people, even larger, you know, upper middle or, or legitimately like, you know, larger cap funds will set up much smaller funds to try to find kind of your up and coming, you know, smaller companies, your diamonds in the rough, like much smaller check sizes. Talk about that for a little bit. Like what, what do you find interesting down and in, in kind of the, even below the lower middle market. Sure. Well, it's an interesting construct. I would say as a, you know, private equity funds as a part of a broader money management initiative to deploy additional capital to create returns for their LPs, recognize that maybe one size doesn't fit all. And so what you're seeing is a lot of funds who maybe, you know, if you go back five or 10 years, it was just one big private equity fund. Now they're developing Asian funds or European funds or structured equity funds or even debt funds as a part of their broad suite of funds. And I think the most recent iteration is really what you're talking about is a big fund, KKR, or for instance, or Bain, they'll develop mid-market funds to tackle them in the market. And I think what happened is institutionally for years, even in the big funds, they were looking at smaller transactions but just couldn't figure out how to do that in a way that was consistent with their, with their mandate. They developed separate teams separate funds to do that. I think it's very constructive as you think about creativity. And if you if you like a partnership with a specific fund that takes you through your life cycle of investments, and it creates more shots on goal for entrepreneurs looking for good partners. So we view that as a positive trend, but it's one that's interesting and, and more, I would say in the last three or four or five years than, you know, prior to that. Mark, do you have any final thoughts for us? Say, you know, maybe just one final comment. I think one of the things that will impact probability of close in the second half and even early next year is just the quality of a whole lot of things that we talked about. So I think there's going to be a scenario where high quality, larger companies, not super large, but, you know, larger deals get done, valuations are attractive financing markets will be supportive. But if you have a company, the team is not as well developed, maybe they've got a lot of integration to do, corporate infrastructure is not as built out, lots of adjustments. I think we're in a part of the cycle that a lot of those deals may not get done. And so you may have been a tale of two cities as you think about, we look at, you know, we're sitting there at the end of the year, what got done or not got done. I think those elements are going to be a critical determinant. So we heard it here first, not just, it's not just good sector, it's good team with good vision. 100%. Well, that's a wrap for, uh, for this episode of Drive the deal. Very much want to thank Mark Francis. We always enjoy your perspectives and your insight. And you know, it's always fun to see you out on the road as well. I'm sorry we didn't provide like palm trees and, and you know, sultry offshore weather this time, but we'll have you back in the sun again. So thanks. Look forward to seeing you soon. Absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening. Stay tuned for more content coming out, hosting uh, our own mid-year review with the head of our managed care team, Frank Martin, also with very senior analysts in DC, Holly Stokes. We're looking forward to that. We expect 
expect to see many of the rest of you at upcoming conferences, including big conference with McDermott at uh, HPE in New York, which is going to be October 21st. So if you haven't gotten the details for that yet, we'd encourage you to do so. I know, Brian, you mentioned HPE New York in October. I actually wanted to mention as well that we've got HPE coming up even earlier on September 29th in London. So for our listeners, check out the website at www.mwe.com for more information on HPE London. That event should be of great interest to investors that are investing in healthcare spaces that are really globalized industries, life science services. Uh, We're starting to see some globalization in the dental industry, the veterinary industry, and so forth. So it'll be attended by investors across Europe and some U.S. investors that are interested in examining opportunities in Europe. So hopefully you could join us for HPE London if that's of interest to you. Well, thanks again, Mark, for joining us. Uh, Very insightful to hear about the different sectors that are of interest and the pace of the healthcare private equity markets these days. It sounds like it's going to be a pretty busy third quarter, so we'll look forward to seeing how that plays out. Thanks again for joining us today on Driving the Deal. If you have any questions about our practice, you can reach us on the web at www.mwe.com. And we look forward to talking again soon. This material is for general information purposes only. It should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar 